0: Good morning, Moberly. It's good to see all of you today. I'm so glad that you are here. To those of you who are joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. And uh, I want to say a first word here uh, this morning, which is just thank you. Uh, I cannot express to you our gratitude as a family for the very sweet and kind and warm welcome that you've shown to me and to Amy and to our children. And uh, to say that we are excited to be here is an understatement. Uh, We are ready to see what all that God is going to do in this church family as we embrace you as our new church and as God leads us together into this new chapter in the life of Moberly Baptist Church. It is a new day at Moberly. Amen. And uh, we are excited about all he will do. Now, I want to turn your attention uh, this morning to Christ and to His Word. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to take it and open up to the New Testament book of Colossians as we begin a new series this morning through the book of Colossians. And I just want you to know kind of what you can expect week in and week out I'm going to be taking books of the Bible and preaching through them from beginning to end verse by verse. And I like to preach out of the the New Testament and the Old Testament. So I'll go back and forth between those. I'll cover a lot of different genres because my goal is to give you a good, steady diet of God's word. And that's rooted in what I believe preaching is and what it is not. Okay, preaching is not what I want to say or what I think you need to hear. And in fact, you wouldn't want to listen to preaching like that. You wouldn't want me to sit on Monday morning and scratch my head and think, you know, what do those sinners at Moberly really need to hear this week? Preaching is simply what God has to say. And so we open the Scriptures, and we trust the Spirit of God to use the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. And so we'll just walk straight through books, and uh, that's, that's the, the goal, okay? My, everything I want to lead you to do is to help you to grow in Christ. And one of the primary ways that God grows us in our faith is through His Word, which is inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient. And so we're going to, to do that as we, as we look at Scripture today. So are you ready? All right, well, let's dive into the book of Colossians today. And I want to give you a little bit of background about this uh, book just on, at the onset as we, we dive in, the story of the church at Colossae actually begins in the town of Ephesus. Some of you will remember that the Apostle Paul spent about three years in Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey and uh, was starting churches in Ephesus and preaching the gospel. And you can see a map on your screens here of where Ephesus and Colossae are located. They're about 100 miles from one another. And uh, there were two individuals from Colossae. Their names were Epaphras and Philemon. Now, you've probably heard of Philemon because there's a book of the Bible by that name, and we're actually going to look at that after we finish Colossians. Epaphras, though, is a little bit more unusual name. Uh, Those of you who are pregnant maybe considering baby names, Epaphras might be one of those that you take a look at and consider. But Epaphras and Philemon were Colossians. They were from Colossae, traveled about a hundred miles west, and they heard Paul preached the gospel and they both came to faith in Jesus and they got radically changed by Jesus so much so that they go back home to to Colossae and they start a church together that actually met in Philemon's home. Now that's kind of the origin story for the church at Colossae. Now, if you fast forward just a little bit, by the time you come to the book of Colossians, what you discover is that the church at Colossae was running into some trouble. There were some things that were threatening the health of the church. They faced external threats, not dissimilar to the church in America today. They, uh, they lived, these believers lived in a culture that was pluralistic. It was relativistic. It was idolatrous. And all of those things threatened the life of the church. But there was something even more dangerous, and that was an internal threat that had emerged in the life of the church, there was a theological heresy that had come into play in the the church at Colossae, a doctrinal error. Now you say, well, what was the error all about? Well, it was actually a mixture of several things as doctrinal error usually is. In fact, Curtis Vaughn, who taught New Testament at Southwestern Seminary for a long time, he said this about uh, the, the Colossian heresy. He said, at its heart, The system was a combination of Judaism and paganism, but it wore the mask of Christianity. Now, how many of you have seen heresies in today's church that looks like Christianity, maybe smells like Christianity, but it's not Christianity? Anybody seen something like that? The mask of Christianity. And this Colossian heresy did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone him. It gave Christ a place, but not the supreme place. And that's usually what theological heresy will do. It'll give Christ a place, but not the supreme place. And by the way, let me just pause right here and say, it's, it's easy to kind of begin to tune out when you think about some, a church 2,000 years old, some Colossian heresy that took place a long time ago in a, in a land far away. And it's kind of easy just to say, well, that's not relevant to my life. But we really need to be thinking about the fact that there are heresies that can take root in today's church, amen? And we need to be thinking about what particular heresies might emerge in East Texas, heresies that would give Christ a place, but not the supreme place. Maybe it's the heresy of materialism or the heresy of self-reliance, or comfort, or the idea that that our salvation is somehow rooted in our own performance, or achievement, or our personal goodness. All of these give Christ a place, but not the supreme place. But, But listen, church, I'm here to tell you that Jesus did not come to take part of your life. He came to take over your life, and He must have the superiority in our life. That's what the book of Colossians is all about. And so, Paul's antidote to the threats that are facing this church is a very clear and simple message, and that is that Christ is supreme. That is the colossal truth of this New Testament book. Colossians is all about the superiority of Jesus Christ, that He doesn't get a place in your life, He takes supreme place in your life. In our marriages, in our homes, in our work in our politics, in our inner lives, in our our self-understanding, in our loves and affections. Jesus is bigger and better than anything that this world has to offer and he must have the supreme place in our lives. Jesus has preeminence and he has priority. He has rank and he has rule. He has superiority and supremacy. And that's what Colossians is all about. And we begin to see that even in the first two verses of Colossians chapter 1, which is really Paul's introduction of himself to the church at Colossae. It's Paul's way of just saying hello. And we're going to see even in these first two verses that Christ is so supreme That he is the one who gets to define our lives. That's the big idea today, okay? If you walk away with nothing else today, that's what you walk away with, is that Christ is so supreme that he is the one who gets to define our lives. You know, there are a lot of ways that we can define or describe our lives. In fact, Alistair Begg said that if you really want to know the heartbeat of a church, listen to their definition of themselves. Listen to how they talk about themselves. And typically, whether it's in the life of a church or in our own individual lives, we tend to define ourselves by either our best moments or our worst moments, don't we? We can do that as a church. We, we can describe ourselves by our worst moments. We can talk about this trauma or this hurt or this hardship, and that becomes just the whole way that we view ourselves. Or, on the other hand, we can define ourselves by our best moments, and we can talk about a great history and a great legacy or maybe a, an exciting future that lays ahead of us. But Folks, I pray that our heartbeat would be nothing less than the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus would be central to all that we talk about and all that we we do. You know, if you visit Rome and you go to the catacombs, the the, the graves of early Christians, many of those graves are nameless. You have no idea who's in the tomb. But they will have an inscription on the grave that just says, In Christ Christ. Because the early believers understood that what matters most about you and about me is not even our own name. It's Jesus. And We see that in Paul's life as he says hello and introduces himself, which is so convenient because we're introducing ourselves to each other uh, in these next few weeks, aren't we? We're getting to know one another, and we get to see how Paul uh, uh, introduces himself. And, and we're going to see in the text this morning just three ways that Paul describes himself. that actually teaches us how Jesus defines us. It actually teaches us what God has to say about us. And so I'm going to direct your attention to the text, and I want to read the first two verses of Colossians chapter 1, and then we're going to walk through the text together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now I want you to see just three simple ways that God describes us in these texts. The first thing that we see in the text is simply this, that we are chosen by Jesus. We are chosen by Jesus. You know, it's interesting to me, there are many ways that Paul could have described himself. He could have described himself by his best actions and most impressive attributes. And Paul was an impressive person, wasn't he? He described some of his uh, kind of spiritual resume, if you will, in the book of Philippians. He says, you know, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a true Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. By training, I'm I'm a Pharisee. He could have kind of fronted all of that information to the church at Colossae, just sort of to kind of impress them with his spiritual pedigree. But he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't define himself by his, his attributes or by his best moments. In fact, he refers to himself in a pretty humble way. Notice even uh, in the first verse, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He doesn't even use the definite article, the. He could have done that. The apostle of Jesus. He just says, I'm an apostle of Jesus. Or alternatively, Paul could have defined himself by his. Worst attributes, his worst moments. And in fact, Philippians does the very same thing. He says, I am the chief of sinners, right? 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, he describes himself as a former blasphemer. So Paul could have introduced himself that way as well. And, you know, I find that we tend to do that. We tend to, to sort of introduce ourselves with our best attributes or our worst moments. We define ourselves by our best or our worst, maybe what we've done or what we've failed to do or maybe what has been done to us. But Paul doesn't do any of that. Instead, he defines himself simply in relationship to Jesus He says, the most important thing you can know about me is that I'm a messenger of Jesus. That's what an apostle is. It's just simply a representative, an ambassador, a special envoy, if you will. I'm a messenger of Jesus. Now, that's profound to me when you consider who Paul was before he met Jesus. Because Paul had another name. Tell me what it was. Who can tell me? Saul. And Saul was a really bad guy. In fact, you you could really consider him kind of a Middle Eastern terrorist, if you will. You can read some of his story in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 8, you find that he is a persecutor of the church. In fact, he is a co-conspirator in the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. You fast forward in his life in Acts chapter 9, actually you find that he has received papers from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to go to Damascus in Syria and arrest Christians. They go literally door to door, house to house, drag Christians out, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem where they will either be imprisoned or murdered. And so Paul, Saul rather, before Jesus, Saul is a really bad dude, but on his way to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, Jesus meets him on the road in a dramatic conversion experience and Saul gets radically rescued from his sinful life. This would be like Osama bin Laden getting saved. Okay, this is a drastic, radical conversion. And God does something even beyond saving him. He rescues him from his sin, but then he does something even more. He gives him a mission. He gives him a, a purpose. He calls him to ministry. And you find that the Apostle Paul becomes a, a, a person who um, starts churches all over the Middle East. Uh, you saw a moment ago in Ephesus where he was planting churches. You, you see all these churches that he starts. He authors several letters that are now included in our, in our New Testament. He mentors and disciples, pastors, and church planners. He becomes probably the most influential Christian in 2,000 years of church history. He went from Sinner to saved to sent. And by the way, that's God's purpose for your life as well. Do you know that? God's purpose for each and every one of us is to move from sinner to saved to sent. The Bible begins by telling us that we are sinners. Now, I was putting that word in my iPhone the other day. I was going to text somebody, and I I typed in sinner and autocorrect. Don't you hate that it corrected it to winner. And I thought, that's just like Apple to do that, right? And I mean, the reality is, you can go to a lot of churches that will affirm you and say, you're a winner. Uh, discover the champion in you, that kind of a thing. But the Bible's message is actually know that we are sinners, that we are broken, that left to our own devices, we make a mess of our life. But God, the good news is that God wants to change us He wants to rescue us from our sin. He wants to pull us up out of the pit of this mess of our own making. He wants to save us. But that's not all that God wants to do. Listen, God wants to rescue you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to change your life. But it's not just like you get saved and then you get the get out of hell free card and then you just wait around to catch the rapture bus. It's not like that. God then sends you, and he gives you a purpose and a mission for your life, and you move from sinner to saved to sent. And God had done that for the apostle Paul. He wants to do it in your life. He's got a purpose for you to send you. But now, I want you to notice in the text how all of that happens. How do you move from sinner to saved to sent? Well, look at the text. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, let's say this next part of the verse together. By God's will. Do you have, it's not on the screen, but do you have a Bible with you? Okay, carry a Bible with you. You're going to need it, all right? Look down at the text, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Let's say it together. By God's will. None of this in Paul's life was a, of his own doing. Paul, Paul was saved and sent because God had chosen him. Now, I know that 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 phrase, that God chooses people, God chooses us, that can ruffle all kinds of theological feathers, okay? I get that. And um, it's easy to kind of bristle at the idea of God choosing. But to me, the, the, the doctrine of God's choice of us in salvation, which is a biblical doctrine, it's a sweet and precious doctrine. And here's why. Because if he had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. The reality is there's, there are ways of talking about our salvation that make it sound like it's all about us. I chose God, I was seeking God, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. Jesus wasn't lost. You didn't have to find him. I was lost and Jesus found me. The truth is I wasn't seeking after God. Romans chapter three tells us no one seeks after God. I was running as far away from God as fast as I could run And the good news of the gospel is that God, the God of the universe, loved me so much that he chased me down and found me and saved me. That's what it means for God to choose you. It means it wasn't like you were lovely and religious and you decided, you know, I'm going to go to church one day and uh, I'm going to hear the gospel and I'm going to choose Jesus today. No, God chose us when we were unlovely. It means even on your worst days, when you're unlovely and you're ugly and you're running from God, the God of the universe still wants a relationship with you. No matter who you are or what you've done, you may be today, maybe you're sitting in a seat today and you would just say, Pastor, if I could be really honest, I'm a hypocrite. I've got a double life. I'm one way on Sunday, but all week long, I'm very different and I am running from God and I want you to know God is chasing you down. July 27, 1999, I made the decision to follow Christ, but it was really only because of all of the prior ways that the Spirit of God was working on me and drawing me to Himself. A a great poet described God as the hound of heaven who chases us down, and I'm thankful He did, aren't you? If you're here today and you're maybe just wondering, why am I even in church today? I have no idea why I'm here. I can tell you why you're here because God is chasing you down. The God of the universe wants to have an intimate friendship with you closer than your very best friend on earth. God wants to know you in that way. And even if you are ugly, even if you are unlovely, listen, he will make you lovely in Christ. And so that's the first way that we describe ourselves. It's the first way that we see in the text. <clears throat> we don't define ourselves by our best or our worst moments. We define ourselves like Jesus defines us, and here we see that we are people who are chosen by Jesus. But now, there's a second truth. Not only are we chosen by Jesus, but the text tells us we are also commissioned by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus. Now, you see that certainly in verse 1 as Paul describes himself as an apostle. An apostle is an ambassador, a representative, someone who has been sent by Jesus. So Paul would certainly have that self-understanding that he has been commissioned by Jesus to represent Jesus. But it's also true of the the church at Colossae. Look at how they are described. In verse two, Paul writes to the saints. Now let's not misunderstand what that word means, okay? Because saints, that doesn't mean that you're a perfect people. okay? Believers in Christ are not perfect people. Can I get a witness? We're broken people who are also forgiven people and changed people. To be a saint doesn't mean you're a perfect person. It means you are set apart by God for God. That's what that means, to be set apart by God for God. The Bible word for this is the word holy. We are called to be holy doesn't mean that we're better than everyone else or anything like that. It means God has set uh, set us apart for himself. So Paul's writing to the saints who are, now notice this phrase, in Christ at Colossae. Okay, just circle that or, or underline it because those are dual realities that describe every believer, not just the saints in Colossae. He said, I'm writing to those who are in Christ in Colossae. Okay, And that actually describes a unique dynamic in the Christian life. When you become a follower of Jesus, you enter into this reality where you live in two dimensions all the time at the same time. You are located spiritually in Christ. That means that you have deep union with the person of Jesus, the Son of God. Spiritually, you are in Christ, but geographically, You're at a particular location on earth. He's writing to the church at Colossae. If he was writing to us today, he would say, to those who are in Christ, in East Texas. Okay? And both of those things are true. And the dynamic of the Christian life is how do we figure out how to be both in Christ, in East Texas? And that's a challenging dynamic, isn't it? And in fact, it's becoming even more and more challenging as our culture becomes even more hostile to the Christian faith. How do we navigate this world, in the words of Augustine, as citizens of the city of God and the city of man? How do we live both in Christ and in Colossae or in East Texas and and I think th- both of those terms are very important. You know, I- I've told you about this Colossian heresy. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come. But one of the aspects of the Colossian heresy, some, some scholars believe that part of this ideology that had seeped into the church was the beginnings of something that would come to be known as Gnosticism. Let's say that word together, Gnosticism. Google word for the day, right? Google it. Look it up. Gnosticism is, is simply this ideology that, that matter. Um, that the physical universe is inherently evil. And so the goal of life is to sort of escape the material world and attain some kind of higher spirituality, okay? So the Gnostics didn't believe that space and place mattered. That's not the Christian worldview. Um, the, The Bible says that the world very much does matter, that where you live... And the space and place that you occupy is very important to God. What did God say about creation in Genesis chapter 1? After he finished it, he said it is very good, right? And so here's the reality of the Christian life, the Christian worldview. We acknowledge that actually where you live matters, that space and place is important. It is important that you live where you live when you live there. In fact, consider what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17. You'll see it here on the screens Uh, Verse 26, it says, from one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times, okay? That means that you were born when God wanted you to be born, okay? I've often thought that I was born in a weird time. I am born in a weird time. I mean, it's a weird world. I've, I've thought sometimes, you know, I think I really would have flourished in the 1940s and the 1950s. I've thought that about myself. But it's no accident that I was born, December 15th, 1986. Some of you are like, you long for the good old days. You're like, man, 2022, it's a bummer, you know? It's like 2020 was bad, and then you got 2021, and like 2022's is not looking too great. And you almost think that it's accidental that you happen to be here, or a mistake that you happen to be here right now. It's not. God has appointed the, the appointed times for you. You are living in this kairos moment for a reason. And he's determined the boundaries of where they live. That means you live where you live because God wants you to live there. And aren't you thankful it's Texas? Can I get a witness? What that means is where you live is no accident. You live on your street for a reason, you work where you work for a reason. And that is to represent Christ where you live, work, and play. That the space and the place matters. Colossae matters. Now, our commission by God is to to represent Jesus where we live. To be in Christ in East Texas, right? To, To live faithfully for Christ in Longview, Marshall, White Oak, Gladewater, Gilmer, Tyler, and the rest of East Texas. God has put us here to represent him well, to live faithfully for Christ in East Texas. So let me just ask you, what does that look like? That's the challenge, right, of the whole Christian life. Like, how do I live faithfully in Christ in East Texas? Another way of asking that question is simply to ask this question. If people look at you in your life, can they tell that you're from East Texas? Answer, it's the accent. It gives it away. <laughs> Pretty easy, right? It'd be easy to be identified as somebody who lived in Colossae, right? You go to the Colossian coffee shops. You go to the Colossian Friday night lights to watch those Colossian cyclones take on the Thessalonian tornadoes. You're, it's easy to be identified as a Colossian. It's easy to be identified as somebody from East Texas, but does, do people know that you are in Christ in East Texas? People, when they look at you, they're like, oh, that's a, somebody from East Texas, but do they know that that's a Christian from East Texas? Let me ask you this. How is East Texas different because of group, a, a group of Christians called Marbley Baptist Church live here? Is it recognizable that we are in Christ in Colossae, in Christ in East Texas? And in other words, how is your home and your marriage and your family different because you're a follower of Jesus? How is your street or your neighborhood different because a Christian lives there? Have you ever thought about that question? Does your being in Christ make a difference for your neighborhood? How is your workplace different? Uh, Because a Christian works there, right? That's what it means to be in Christ in Colossae. We are commissioned to represent Jesus where we live, where we work, And and where we play. There's a third truth that we see in the text. Not only that we are chosen by Jesus and we are commissioned by Jesus, but here's the final thing I want you to see in the text, and that is simply that we are those who are changed by Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that? That's a good word of hope that we are people who are changed by Jesus. And Paul understood himself that way, he understood the church at Colossae that way. Notice the language that Paul uses for the Christians in Colossae he says, To the saints, in Christ Jesus at Colossae. So we've talked about that word saints. It means not a perfect person, but someone who is set apart by God for God. When when you come to faith in Jesus, listen, it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter if there are things that, that are deeply broken in your story. God can change you from sinner to saint. From someone who was alienated from God to someone who is set apart by God for God. You can go from someone who was hostile to God to someone who's a friend of God. That's what it means to be changed by Jesus. God can take your mess and turn it into a message. He can take your brokenness and make something beautiful of it. He can change you from sinner to saint. But not only that, not only are we saints, we are also members of God's family. When you come to faith in Jesus, you move from alienation to adoption. From alienation to adoption. We are those who are outside of the family of God, but when you come to faith in Jesus, God adopts you as a son or a daughter of the king. Isn't that good? Did you notice all of the family language in these first two verses? Just notice it. Let's go back in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, let's say it together. Our, Our brother... Verse two, to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are, let's say it together, faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You notice the family language here. When you come to faith in Jesus, you're no longer defined by your best moment or your worst moment, right? You're defined by who Jesus says you, you are, and you are someone who's been changed by Jesus to be a member of God's family. You are now, look look to your right and to your left. You realize this is family? These are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have not just a family horizontally, you have a family vertically. God is our father. I know father imagery and language can be really tough in our days with a, a fatherhood epidemic, really, that we have in our society. But the fatherhood of God, listen, if you're here today and you just struggle with the idea of dad, God as father is everything you hoped your dad would be. God as father is everything you, you hope maybe dads to be. God as father is good. He is a good, good father. Amen? We are changed to be members of his family from alienation to adoption. But then notice finally this little phrase at the, the back end of verse 2. He says, grace to you and Peace. Grace to you and peace. As Christians, we are those who have received grace and peace from God. Now, I would argue that the reason that we can be saints and the reason that we can be members of God's family is actually because we are recipients of God's grace and peace. And there's actually a logical relationship between grace and peace, okay? Everybody wants peace with God, right? I want peace with God. I want to be a friend of God. And so we try all kinds of ways to be at peace with God. We, we try to be really good people. We try to do all the right things. We try to live moral lives. We try to vote the right way and be a good neighbor and all these types of things because we want to be at peace with God because we know we're not, right? We wake up in the morning, we look in the mirror and we know something's wrong. Something's off here. Something's broken. And so we try this, that, and the other to try to get peace with God. But here's the deal. Peace with God is something that is achieved for you, not by you. Peace with God is not something that you can just sort of pick yourself up by your own moral bootstraps and earn. Okay? Peace with God is earned for you by Jesus. That's a good place for an amen. Okay? And and by the way, let me just, I got a couple minutes. Let me take a little rabbit trail. All right? Tim is like, you don't have a couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> peace with God, by the way, is not a feeling. Because, you know, maybe you've heard this phrase, like, you'll feel a peace about it. Anybody ever had somebody tell that to you? You'll feel a peace about it. I don't like that phrase. Because <laughs> I very rarely feel a peace about it. But the reality is peace with God has nothing to do with how you happen to feel about it at any particular moment. You might wake up one morning, you're like, man, I feel at peace with God. Great not always going to be like that there are going to be some mornings where you don't feel that at all peace with God is an objective reality not a subjective feeling in other words it doesn't really matter how I happen to feel about it I have objectively been moved in my status from enemy of God to friend with God that's really what it means to be at peace with God it means it's not about how I feel at any given moment it has to do with my relationship with him that I am a friend of the God of the universe. I'm no longer an enemy of the God of the universe. And that objective reality is achieved not by me but for me. That's what grace is. You see, we have peace with God because of the grace of God. That's the relationship logically between grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. The only way to have peace with God is to experience the grace of God. You say, what's the grace of God? It's very simple. It is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. You cannot achieve peace with God. It is God's grace that achieves that for you. Him doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Here's the reality. We are not okay. Can I get a witness? We're not... We're not okay. (laughs) There's something deeply wrong with us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will acknowledge that. There's something deeply broken inside. The the Bible actually says that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Um, We are so spiritually sick. Um, You know, Amy and I, uh, a few years ago, we decided we would have a really nice date together. So we were going to be fancy. So we went to World Market. And our fancy date was going to be, we were going to like get some very exotic food at world market. Don't ever do that. Okay. We got this fancy stuff. It was like high class, you know, the kinds of things that like sound French and you can't pronounce it. You don't know where it's from. And so we get all this fancy food. We bring it home, candlelight dinner with all this world market food. Let me just cut to the chase. We got really sick. (laughs) I'll spare you the gory details, but we were real sick. All right. So sick that... The next day, I'm dehydrated. I'm just so, so sick and <clears throat> full of regret and self-loathing, right? Um, and I, I remember getting up out of the bed at the end of the day. I'm so tired. And I remember taking about two steps before I blacked out. And I passed out. And I, I have no idea how long I had blacked out. I just woke up in our bathroom, and between there, there was a, a little short half wall, and then the commode. Well, somehow, I had stumbled in there, and I f- passed out, and I had been wedged between the half wall and the toilet, and my head had smacked the toilet and it was just right there on the on the toilet <laughs> lid, just like that and I woke up and i 'm just so disoriented and <clears throat> I was so dehydrated, I've, I try to move my hands and I look at my hands, it kind of catches my attention, my hands were doing this. I couldn't open my hands and I tried to call out to Amy, but I had lock jaw and I couldn't open, my mouth wouldn't work. And so it just, I was there in between the half wall and the toilet calling out to Amy. <laughs> and she comes in there and she's just freaking out. What in the world is going on with my crazy husband? And I can't help myself. I can't get up. She, I, she can't get me out of this little thing where I was wedged. And so she, we remember the First Baptist Church of Forney. And she called a, a member of our Sunday school class, my friend Toby. And she said, I have no idea what's going on with Andrew. You just need to get over here. He needs some help. And so Toby drives over. It's the middle of the night. He drives over. He gets me. And literally, I'm so sick. I can't even stand up. And he just picks me up and carries me and throws me into his truck and drives me over to Kaufman in the middle of the night, which is not where you want to go to the hospital in the middle of the night. And if we get there, I still can't stand. So he gets me out of the truck. He brings me into the emergency room and brings me to somebody who can do something about it. And the nurse hooks me up into one of those IVs that gives me all the happy juice. And before, before long, I was alive again. But here, here's, here's the reality, folks. Not a single one of us is well enough to stand on our own two feet spiritually. We, we are so broken and so sick. We need a friend who will come and lovingly pick us up and carry us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's grace, and it results in peace. And my prayer is that you've experienced it. You've been changed by Jesus. Christians are not perfect people. We're just changed people. And if you need change today, if you need Jesus in that way, you just be honest enough to say, Pastor, I'm here. I don't even know why I'm here. But I can tell there's something messed up. Let me just tell you, there's a, a God of the universe who created you, who wants a relationship with you. He's actually been chasing after you. And that little thing on the inside you're just not sure where that came from that's actually him trying to get your attention and he's willing to come up to you however ugly and unlovely you are and pick you up and carry you and make you new in Christ and all you have to do to be changed by Jesus it's it's really not anything you do it's receiving what Christ has done for you it's a free gift it, it just the bible says we we turn from our sins we, we look at our broken life and we say, we don't want that anymore. I'm turning from that. And then we put our trust in Jesus. We just trust that what he has done by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead, it's enough to save me. And I don't have to try to keep picking myself up off the ground. i got a friend who's willing to carry me, and I trust him. And then we make him our greatest treasure. He becomes the thing, the, 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 he becomes the person that we love the most. All the things of this world, right, grow strangely dim, the song teaches us in the light of his glory and grace. And so he becomes the thing that matters most to us. If you've never done that before, let me invite you to do that today, to just turn from your sin, put your trust in Jesus, make him the treasure of your life. In a moment, Nate is gonna sing. We're gonna be sent out from this place. If you're interested in a relationship with Jesus, you can just go straight out those back doors. And the, ga- the guest area there are friends who are ready and eager to talk with you about how to have a relationship with Jesus what a great day, September 11th, 2022, that you could be changed by Jesus. You could be made new by him. Just walk out there and share that with somebody. If you're watching online, you can text MBC MBC to the number on your screen. Someone will be in touch with you about how to have your life changed by Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that our relationship with you is something received, not earned. So, Lord, help us to walk in the freedom of that. Help all of us who know Jesus to represent Jesus well. In Christ, in East Texas. For those who are here who don't know Jesus yet, a Savior today, I pray that they would listen to the hound of heaven. They'd respond in faith to Christ. It's only possible through your spirit. So we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.